We left, at, we left off last week talking about Solomonic authorship, so if you still have your first handout, uh, on page four, in the middle of the page, where you see the heading there, internal and contextual evidence, that's where we're at right now. And uh, we did a little bit of this, but just to get us going again, a uh, couple of slides of review, that one of the reasons we're talking about this is the book itself says that the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, uh, is the identification of who is speaking. And so in chapter 1, verse 1, we have that stated. And then we have in chapter 1, verse 12, uh, something that sounds a lot like 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 42, this individual is king over Israel in Jerusalem. And then in verse 16, all who were over Jerusalem before me is mentioned. And that sounds very much like what is said about Solomon in 1 Chronicles 29:25. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, the same phrase again about all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And notice it doesn't say all who preceded me as king over Israel. It says, all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And uh, sometimes people look at this and say, oh, it has to be over Israel. And uh, so then they can't find enough because there's only David and Saul who were king over Israel before Solomon. But if we go back and take a look, we find out that Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14 was king over Jerusalem, king in Jerusalem. Adonizedek in Joshua 10.1 was king in Jerusalem. And then Araunah in 2 Samuel 24, verse 23, was king in Jerusalem. So we have three, even before we get to Saul and David, who preceded uh, Solomon as king. So as we go through that list, it makes sense. And we can compare also, you have a chart for yourselves there on page four, that shows the wisdom, the works, the wealth, and the words of the author of Ecclesiastes compared to the wisdom, the works, the wealth, and the words of Solomon as described in 1 Kings. And as we look at that, it becomes very evident that the writer of Ecclesiastes intends to indicate that he is Solomon. As I mentioned at the conclusion of class last week, many look at that and say, oh yeah, but that was just a, a fiction. It was an intentional, fictitious identity. He intended to represent himself as Solomon, but he is not Solomon, and he does that as a fiction and as a means of writing the book. It is not something written by Solomon. And I would disagree with that very heartily. I think that there's plenty of evidence here to demonstrate that Solomon was indeed the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we will proceed with that uh, assumption as we move forward. When did he write the book of Ecclesiastes? Probably in his old age, somewhere between 940 and 932 BC. And uh, you see the picture up here is from a uh, drawing made by artists in National Geographic giving indication of what Solomon's temple may have looked like with the great bronze sea, it's called there, the big bronze laver, the priest dipping into it with uh, vessels and then bringing it down and emptying the vessels into the smaller portable mobile type of lavers that were on stands with wheels that could be wheeled around the courtyard and used by the priest to wash. And uh, that's 
Solomon's work. And as you read Ecclesiastes chapters 1 and 2, he talks about all of his works, how he established parks, how he built pools for water, for uh, drinking water, for bathing water, for water that was needed in the city of Jerusalem, how he built buildings and palaces. And uh, it talks about his wealth, how he had so much wealth. He had more gold and silver than anyone else. And we also find out about his wisdom. And uh, as we work, work through this, we see all of it very easily fits with Solomon. But he was not only the builder of the temple, but he was also the builder of great cities. The city of Megiddo was one of several cities that Solomon was uh, reinforcing, putting walls around, building huge monumental gates. The picture here shows what uh, an artist drawing would conceive of these gates. Up there at the top, that's Bill Schlegel with Ibex standing there at one of the gates at Megiddo, and there's some debate as to exactly which king built that particular gate, but there's no argument about the fact that Solomon uh, refortified the city of Megiddo and built its original gates. Later kings may have refurbished them and built further on them, but he was responsible for a lot of that, and at Hatsor as well. There uh, is so much that he built and that he was responsible for. In fact, we could say that Solomon's glory was gl greater than that of the city of Ashkelon's uh, nearly 900 years earlier. Some look at it and say, well, you know, this is not possible for a king like Solomon to build such uh, fortifications, to build such walls and gates and monuments and buildings. Uh, it, it's not possible. It's too early in history. And those are those that take an evolutionary approach to history and say that man gradually gains these responsibilities and these abilities and skills. And they say it was too early for Israel, but the rest of the world is already building it. In fact, right there in the, the context, we have the ancient Canaanites in, before the Philistines took over Ashkelon, built this huge monumental gate and city wall at Ashkelon 900 years before Solomon. And if Solomon is such a great and wise king, certainly he would be able to replicate a work of that nature. This is another National Geographic painting, uh, uh, looking at the gate as it's been described by excavators at Ashkelon, uh, working just in the last 10 to 15 years. Also, Solomon's glory is greater than that of the great temple among the Syrians at Ain Dara. And here you have a picture that gives you an overview of a huge temple complex in Syria that dates back to the same time as Solomon's temple and has many of the exact same type of architectural elements. A holy of holies, a large courtyard, uh, cherubim-like creatures guarding the entries to and from the different precincts of that temple, a huge temple. And we look at it and remember that Solomon had such glory that even the Queen of Sheba came to see his glory. And so it exceeded that. And it was even said to be greater than the glory of Egypt. This is the funerary temple of Queen Hatshepsut. And uh, it, it's being seen from the air here. It's a huge complex. If there were people walking on the ramp the entry ramp down here, they would look like ants. 
they'd be so small from this height and uh, looking at it, but a huge complex. And uh, remember that uh, Egypt was one of those nations with which Solomon gained alliances. And he married a princess of Egypt, and he had alliances with Pharaoh. And Solomon's glory is greater than that. And we might be rem reminded, however, as Jesus said, that Solomon's glory is less than the glory of God's creation, right? Jesus talked about the lily of the field and talked about it being clothed in such a way that it was greater than the glory of Solomon himself. When we look at the glory of Solomon, we rightly have a great king, but let's put that king in perspective. And that helps us really to make a transition because as we're talking about what Solomon says here, we're going to find out that he learns that lesson himself. He may have thought very highly of himself at some point because of all that God had blessed him with and given him. But he's going to realize that in essence, he is virtually nothing in comparison to what God has done and what God has made. What kind of literature is the Book of Solomon? It is wisdom literature. And we can compare that. You have the uh, information there in your sheet on page four at the bottom. You can read that for yourself. There are several different types of literature found in Egypt and in Babylon that seem to come close to the same type of wisdom literature we see in Ecclesiastes. But those three that are listed for you there are all of them older than Ecclesiastes. And in addition, all of them have only a human perspective whereas Ecclesiastes is going to bring us to see the divine perspective on life. Each section of the book of Ecclesiastes concludes with one of the following concepts. One of them is the weakness or transience of man's accomplishments. We're going to be reminded of that, that we are nothing, that in essence what we accomplish is not anything really great in comparison to history, in comparison to uh, uh, God himself. Another concept that concludes the sections of Ecclesiastes is the uncertainty of man's fate. How many of you here today, this morning, are certain, absolutely positive of the date of your going home to be with the Lord? <laughs> Raise your hand if you're certain. Because we want to know what day it is. All right, see, we, we are uncertain. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know when we leave here today if we're going to make it home. We don't know what each day brings us, and we do those things. Uh, as James told us, we don't say, well, I'm going to go here and there. I'm going to sell goods. I'm going to do this and that. No, we say, if what? If the Lord wills, right. And then the impossibility of attaining true knowledge in this world. Now, how many of you right now are either students, teachers, or pursuing some form of education and learning, whether it's job training or anything else? How many of you? All right, great. At least a third of us. And I imagine many of the rest of you still would say you haven't stopped learning, right? How many of you would say you've stopped learning? We want to know. Okay, no one, see? But all that we gain in this world, in our knowledge, is nothing compared to what we will have when we get to heaven and stand before God. True knowledge goes beyond even this world. 
throughout the book, and this is on page five of that first handout, you have a chart there. Carpe diem, what does carpe diem mean? Go ahead. Seize the day, right. Take advantage of today because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Don't put off today <laughs> what you could do tomorrow. Do it now, get it done. And this concept is found throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, it is a major break in the book. It summarizes the entire first part of the book. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 and verse 22 are a subsection that is concluded. Chapter 5, verses 18 to 20 ends the second major section of the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 8, verse 15 concludes another major section of the book. Chapter 9, verses 7 through 10 is a subsection. And then chapter 11, verse 7 through 12, 1, finally concludes uh, the book as you come down to the final statement of the author at the end. So all the way through, these are what have come to be known as carpe diem passages. Look at chapter 2, verse 24 as an example. Someone find that and read it for us nice and loud. Chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. Someone read that for us. There's nothing better for man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without it? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving up to Okay, what, how is life summarized here? Good or bad? Good. And who's responsible for it being good? All right. And that is the message we're going to find in every one of these carpe diem passages. It is enjoy life because it is good, and it's good because God has given it. It is his design and his intent, his purpose, that we enjoy the life he has given us. Now, let's ask you a question and see a, a show of hands. How many of you have something you've received from God that is not good? Raise your hand if you've received something from God that is not good. How many of you have received something from God that is good? Okay, now, what does that say? Does God ever give anything bad? Is God a good God or not? All right, so everything God gives is good. And if he's given us life, then that's good. And what he's given us is to be enjoyed. Spiritual gifts are to be enjoyed. Salvation is to be enjoyed. Forgiveness is to be enjoyed. We think of all the spiritual good that God's given us as gifts and to be enjoyed. But what about the other things he's given us? What about families? What about a job? For those of you who have jobs and those of you who don't, you're saying, yeah, I wish God would give me one, <laughs> right? Why? Why do you want it so badly? Because it's good. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. Education. We go on and on. We can list all these things. The things that God gives are good. And one of the messages of this book, as we see in these carpe diem passages, it, it, it is throughout the book. Yes, we hear vanity, vanity, all is vanity, but that's not the main message. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity is the message man without God under the sun sees and thinks of life, 
But the one who has a vision above the sun, including God in heaven, understands life in a different perspective. It's not vanity. It is joy. All right? So that's one of the things we're going to see in the book. The trademarks of this book, you can see listed there on page five uh, of the first handout. Number one is the search for happiness and enduring substance. Enjoy life as God's gift. And one of the things the writer is going to point out is we should not be paralyzed by life's uncertainties. You can only enjoy the life God has given if you're unparalyzed by the uncertainties of life. When we see the uncertainties and we stop living life as we ought to live it, then we're not following God's design. We've got our eyes on the world. We're walking by sight and not by faith when we do that. Now, isn't that kind of hard sometimes? How many of you will confess that sometimes you've been paralyzed by the difficulties of life? All right. We've got a lot of honest people here. All right? Yes, that happens. Can someone give me an example of something that you faced that paralyzed you from living life as you ought to before God, as a gift of God? Anyone have an example? Mark. The battle that I went through in my life was battling. My wife was battling. Okay, Marvin said uh, that when his wife was battling cancer, it was a battle they went through together, and it paralyzed him for a time from enjoying the life that God had given. Anyone else? Dinah? Okay, good. All right. When Dinah's husband passed away, you know, she says she wasn't necessarily paralyzed by that, but she found out she had to work at not being paralyzed by it. All right? That's what happens. That's life. That's what we face. But the message of the book of Ecclesiastes is do not be paralyzed by life's uncertainties. Uh, we are to be undepressed by life's shortness. Uh, you know, sometimes, like when our daughter went through this battle with cancer, I mean, she's only in her early 30s. And uh, it, it's easy to become depressed by that or to think that, you know, life is so short and it can be gone so quickly. And uh, we're not to be depressed by that. By life shortness. I won't ask how many of you may have woke up uh, maybe in the middle of the night over the past week and thought about how brief life is. Uh, we think about it and we ought to think about it, but we ought not to become depressed because of that. And the book of Ecclesiastes is going to provide us the antidote for that. And we are to rather reverence and serve God in life. This is the ultimate message of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the purpose of the writer writing it. And how does he come to that conclusion? He knows because he has in his life been paralyzed by life's uncertainties. And he has been depressed by the brevity of life. But the way he came through that was to focus on God, to reverence and serve God. A second trademark of the book is to emphasize divine sovereignty and providence. God is in control. Why? Number one, he's the creator. He's the creator, and we cannot trifle with him, his will, or his work. Can you think of how you would describe God's sovereignty and the fact that we cannot change what he has done? 
Can you think of any illustration of that or any example of that? Anyone? Yes. Okay. Okay, Cora. We have no control over the day that we go home to be with the Lord. Yes. Okay, Bonnie. Hurricanes and earthquakes. Were the people of Haiti in charge of when the earthquake hit? No. God is in control, and we cannot trifle with that, and we cannot do anything about what he does. God's world cannot be changed to our liking. We might think, oh, well, if I were God, I would do things a little bit differently. Especially in my life, I would do things a little bit differently, right? That's usually what it is. We want something changed for us to make things a little bit better, less depression, longer life, all those type things, right? More money, <laughs> better health, all those things that we might change. But, you know, we're not seeing it the way God sees it, and we're not understanding it. We cannot change the world to our liking. We're just pilgrims here. We're just passing through. Thanks, Tom. Well, yes. Can I give a, can I give a, sure. Go ahead, Doc. Uh, when we got the call in Ox 6, 2006, to go back to Africa for a year, within two months, everything was arranged. Our department was rented, our support came in, and in two months, we were on our way. And it worked all out. We came back. Our job gave us. Okay, when God wants you to do something, he arranges for it, doesn't he? <laughs> and he makes things work out. A third part of this, of divine sovereignty, is we cannot extrapolate from the present because the pattern keeps changing according to God's will and plan. We can look at today, and there's a lot of people trying to do that with the stock market, trying to do that with the current economy in America, trying to do that with the politics of the United States, all these things we can try to extrapolate out from what we've learned from history and say this is what's going to happen here and lo and behold we get that far along and it's very different from what we hypothesized. Why? Because God is always full of surprises. He can vary what happens according to his will to accomplish his desire. We can't extrapolate from the present. All right. God is the judge and will bring all wickedness into judgment. There's another truth of his sovereignty. He's in control, and he has a time and a place to judge wickedness and evil. The third and final trademark is what we call the golden mean of human conduct. Avoid excesses, follow moderation. One thing about that is then we need to be content with the present. The second, we must be conciliatory. This is what the New Testament says. We are to, as much as is possible, to live at peace with all men, right? That's what this is talking about, the same truth. James is mentioning it too. This is part of the lesson from the book of Ecclesiastes. And be cautious. This is what Paul wrote about in Ephesians, of redeeming the time and uh, uh, remembering that time is valuable and remembering that the choices we make have effects. Therefore, be cautious and take the proper steps. Think about what we're doing. So we could say 
as one writer did, that the summary of uh, Ecclesiastes could be said to be live without reserve, die without regret, but only within the pattern that's set forth. It's under the control of fearing God and obeying his commandments. Life's problems, uncertainty of time and chance, these are on the back of that first handout, three foundational truths. Uh, the, the uncertainty of time and chance. Man is not sovereign, God is. And the endemic and incurable nature of wickedness. Man is not inherently good, only God is inherently good. And the third, death has the final word in any human enterprise. Man is not immortal. So man's not in control, man's a sinner, and man is mortal, is what this book teaches. Now, think about that for a minute. Does that sound like good news or bad news? Okay. <laughs> I like the way Carolyn put it. It sounds like bad news, but it'll turn out to be good news. As my father said before he died, when the doctor said, George, what you have is serious, uh, you could die from this. My dad said, I'm counting on it. Who wants to stick around here? You know? <laughs> And especially with the body he had at that time and the troubles he had, uh, he was looking forward to going home with the Lord. But, you know, this is why we have the gospel, the good news. The gospel in Jesus Christ responds to all of these. It says, look, listen, God is in control and he has prepared something for you that will take care of your sin problem and will give you eternal life. So as we look at that and we think about it, what we have in Ecclesiastes lays the foundation for the gospel. This news prepares us for the good news of the gospel. So the outline of the book is this way. I've given it to you there on the back of, of page six of the first handout. From experience, Kohelet, that's the preacher, the title of the man who's working here, that's the Hebrew word for it. Kohelet learns that man is powerless. From observation, he learns that God has a design for all things. By application, he finds the explanation for inequalities in divine providence. And lastly, in conclusion, he determines to fear God, obey God, and enjoy life. That's the fourfold outline of the book. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. Now let's turn to today's outline. Today's handout. When we think about Solomon, and we, excuse me, and we think about his writing this book, we have to keep in mind 1 Kings 11.4. 1 Kings 11.4 says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David, his father, had been. That's the background to Ecclesiastes. Because at that point, Solomon is on a downward spiral in his life's journey. And he's moving away from God. And he has problems in his life that he has not yet seen the end of. And I believe that Ecclesiastes is his spiritual journal 
about that. It's his confession. It is his writing about what he went through at that time. So let's begin by asking the question, was Solomon a believer when all of this occurred? Was he a believer? Well, 1 Kings 3 talks about his love for the Lord. Remember, that's when he asked for wisdom. And God granted him wisdom. In that same chapter, he, he confessed his immaturity. He's very realistic about his situation. And then we see him later as he becomes more mature and he operates in the wisdom that God gifts him with. We see him building the temple in accordance with his father David's uh, plans and instructions. And when the temple is finished, Solomon prays a wonderful prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. It is a long prayer, one of the longest prayers recorded in Scripture. But if we look at that prayer very carefully, we find out that he demonstrates in that prayer in verses 15, 20, 24 to 26 and other places as well, his faith in God's word. He believes what God says. He believes it will come to pass. And God expresses his pleasure with Solomon both at that first time in chapter 3 in his encounter with God and after the prayer of dedication for the temple in chapter 9, God expresses that he is pleased with what Solomon has done, what Solomon has said, and what Solomon has prayed. Not only that, God used him to write a number of books of the Old Testament and two different psalms. We have the book of Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, we have Psalms 72 and 127 plus the book of Ecclesiastes. Would God use, do we know of any unbeliever who wrote any book of the Bible? Do we know of any unbeliever who wrote any book of the Bible? No, not one. In fact, wouldn't that cause us to wonder about whether or not what we have is the word of God? If God used an unbeliever to write it? Yes, God can use a donkey to speak <laughs> to a false prophet. But God doesn't work that way with his word. And there, this would be the only book written by an unbeliever if Solomon was an unbeliever. Is, that, is it Ecclesiastes the original name? Uh, well, it didn't have any original names. None of the books really had names. Those are given by us later on. Yes. Okay, now the, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 26, uh, Nehemiah writes very specifically that Solomon was beloved of God. And that's more than just talking about a John 3.16 love where it says that God so loved the world. All right? This is a very specific identifying love with one individual with whom God is pleased. And 1 Kings 11 speaks about Solomon's experience as a result of his many wives as being a departure from his normal spiritual life, not a carrying on of what his spiritual life was like. It seems to be a surprise. It seems to be something that's totally different and unexpected here. And so it would indicate that Solomon was really a believer. Now that leads to another question. How is it that a believer 
can go through the things that Solomon talks about in the book of Ecclesiastes. What do we normally refer to that kind of living as? If we know of a person in the church who goes off into the excesses of pleasure-seeking and all these other things, what do we call that? Worldly, carnal, backslidden, backslidden. We talk about that. Is that possible of a believer? Well, it appears to be at least possible in the Old Testament with a man like Solomon. What about David, who commits adultery and who uh, commits murder? The same, right? We can go on and on. We can list these. Now, we don't have such examples that way necessarily in the New Testament, although we might look at Peter and wonder, was Peter really a believer when he would deny knowing Jesus? And we know that Judas was an unbeliever as one of the disciples of Christ. Could Peter have been an unbeliever also and only come to faith after he has betrayed Christ? Pardon? He had hoof and mouth disease. All right? Yes? Yes. Correct. All right. So he's the result. Well, he's the result of the marriage afterward. But remember, the first child of adultery died. Remember that. Saul, I mean, uh, David grieved over that. The first child died. But he is the son of Bathsheba and David, the second child. All right. Yes, Bonnie. Yes. He did, didn't he? Okay. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. When someone finds that, please read it. Tom read the last one. Who will read the next one? 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. Okay, notice what Paul says here to believers, New Testament believers, believers in Jesus Christ who have had their sins forgiven and who stand before God as children of God. They are told, take heed, therefore, lest you fall. Beware. Ecclesiastes is going to teach us a lesson like that. It's going to say, you want to know what can happen if you stop reverencing God, fearing God as we ought, and obeying him? This is what can happen. And do you think at first that it might be worthwhile to experience such pleasures and all excesses? Well, look at the results. The results are not pretty. And they're not something that someone then ends up really enjoying. Beware. And remember that these temptations that come are common to all human beings. But God provides a way of escape. In chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, verse 2, we have a concept of vanishing vapors. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
We're going to find that the concept of this, remember, and we'll, you have it in your uh, sheets there on the second page especially. I put, you, put there for you the, the uh, chart that I used last week. Uh, in one moment of selfishness or recklessness or just plain inadvertence, our everything can become nothing. Remember that chart that showed that the Hebrew here really all is vanity is literally everything, nothing. And it's the change in the Hebrew is that tiny little corner of one letter makes the difference in the meaning of those two things. It only takes that. It's like that rocket that went up from the Cape in Florida years ago, and it got up and suddenly it veered off course and was heading toward populated areas of nearby cities. And the launch people had to press the destruct button and destroy it and explode the rocket. When they did the examination later to find out what went wrong, they found there was one error and only one error in millions and millions and millions of letters and characters in the computer code. The person who had input the code at one place and only one place had inserted a period where there should have been a comma. That was all the mistake. One little inadvertence led to the destruction of that rocket. Now, how have you experienced this truth? Has there been something that you have gone through in your life that in one moment you had your everything become nothing? Anyone willing to talk about it? Does it happen? How many of you, though, that you don't want to talk about it would admit that there's been a time when that's happened? All right. See? That's it. That's one of the messages of this book. That's why one of the lessons is to live life with caution and awareness. Be aware that every deed, every action we have has consequences, has results. Yes? what she said, but I'll repeat it just in case she couldn't. She was saying here, and what's your name again? Tricia. Tricia was saying that it really isn't that it has become nothing because it's nothing to begin with. Our all in all is in Christ, right? As believers. And that even when we go through that process, there is yet hope because we still have Christ and can move on. And that's true. And that's what we can be thankful for as believers. But at the same time, we have to realize that our actions do have consequences. And although that nothing may be temporary and just temporal, just of this world, uh, we can go through some hard times in our life if we're not careful. All right, let's go further. What do you call these kind of license plates? First of all, vanity plates. Another meaning of vanity. Uh, What's the first one say? 
Italian D in there, right? All right. Vanity plates, right? Why do we put such things on our cars? We're vain. All right. We want to we want to give a message out there. What? Okay. Which car is yours, and which one is someone else's? Okay. And we've already been re reminded. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no California ones. All right. Now, in chapter 1, and this is the last thing we'll have time for this morning, uh, in chapter 1, in verses 3 through 8, we have these things that go on and on. The sun rises and sets. Uh, the wind blows, turns the south and to the north. It just swirls around in circular courses. The rivers flow in the sea. The sea's not full. The sea evaporates. The waters form clouds. They go back and put water back in the rivers again that flow to the sea, and it's never full. All things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with its hearing. In his omniscience, God as creator has established the cycles of the earth. We read about that in Genesis chapter 1. And these cycles elicit awe and admiration, but they also reveal our insignificance. Because does do, do those cycles stop when we leave this earth? No. They just continue, don't they? Does that include global warming? Uh, it might include global warming as well. It get, grows cold, it grows warm back and forth throughout the ages. Dick? And one in the middle reminds me of the beautiful mountains with the snow. Oh, yes. Right. The cycle of winter elicits awe. These things ought to produce uh, something in us. We ought to say, what is man that you are mindful of him? But what was Solomon's conclusion while he was living in sin and had chosen a path away from God? He found it depressing. He found it depressing because everything continues the same. And he was bored with it all. Watch that. There's a lesson. The things we see in creation, if they elicit boredom and depression from us, it might be because 
we are involved in sin, a life that is contrary to God. We're not obeying him. We're not fearing him the way we ought. And therefore, we do not respond to his creation the way we ought. That if we are living for him, we are obeying him, we will be struck by our insignificance and by the marvel of his love and care for someone as insignificant as we are. All right, with that, let's close today. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for all you've given us in your word here. And we ask as we continue studying the book of Ecclesiastes that you will just continue to bring us face to face with ourselves, with you, and with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.